Hello, and welcome to another IBM SPOT. In this episode, we're joined by PhD researcher and face mask expert, Ellen Marie van der Hoosen. Apologies for the dreadful pronunciation. Ellen Marie dialed in from an airport hotel where she'd been in isolation for eight days after returning from a research trip to South Africa. If you want to hear about which face masks are the most effective, future infection control measures, and the quality of airport hotel food, then this is the episode for you. After Ellen Marie, we're joined by Zoe Andrews in Lab Life, who discusses the opening up of society on Guernsey after lockdown restrictions were lifted in March. And if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to read the May issue of The Biomedical Scientist, in which both Ellen Marie and Zoe are featured. Right, on with the podcast. First up, the news. Hi, I'm Ella. And I'm Jordan. And this is your IBMS News. Voting has begun in the IBMS Council elections 2021. Corporate members are invited to elect two national members of the IBMS for a term of office beginning in June 2021. If you're a corporate member and have not yet registered to vote, you can still do so via email, our website, or by calling us. Registration closes on the 19th of May. Following the BBC Panorama's undercover investigation into a lighthouse laboratory last month, the IBMS issued a statement reiterating the need for more HCPC registered staff and UCAS accreditation in these laboratories. The IBMS History Committee has published three new papers in the Ulster Medical Journal. The papers explore the history of work-related diseases and were published following a poster presentation at Congress 2019. Check out the Support Hub events scheduled throughout the month of May, including sessions on well-being and approaches to evidence. IBMS Support Hub is a series of free online sessions to help support members' professional development. Sessions are open to all members. Come along for the discussion and take part in this valuable CPD opportunity. You can find more details about all our stories in our show notes. Helene Marie, welcome to the podcast. Could I ask you to introduce yourself and just say a few words about what you do first off? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. So um, my name is Helene Marie van der Westesen. I'm a medical doctor by background, so I trained in South Africa. And I'm also an infection control researcher. So I've been researching this topic for the past eight years, um, originally focusing mainly on tuberculosis and how to prevent its spread. But of course, COVID came along and grasped my attention and, and so many of the other researchers around the world. And uh, anyone listening isn't going to be able to see the small beige room that I can see on Zoom at the moment. Uh, where are you at the moment? And t- talk us through why you're there and what you're doing. Yeah, so I um, recently completed uh, field work um, as part of my research in South Africa. And so I've been traveling back to the UK. And of course, South Africa is one of the red list countries. So I'm in the mandatory hotel quarantine at Heathrow Airport at the moment, um, which has been a really interesting infection control experience in itself. (laughs) (laughs) How's it been? Talk us through the experience. So you you, you get off the plane, you walked over to the hotel, you know, what what happens next? How's it been? Yeah, so I, I think the first thing that you notice when you arrive is at the airport is there are separate queues for people from red list countries and the process takes 
quite a while to get through passport control and they want to check that you've made your hotel quarantine booking. Um, so there's a lot more paperwork than, than usual. And yeah, then you're escorted by security um, to the bus that takes you to the hotel. And then you ask to stay in your hotel um, quarantine room for 11 nights. Um, so it's just a, a touch more than, um, I think, it, yeah, it's, it's to make sure that you'd have 10 full days um, in hotel quarantine and you do COVID tests on day two and day eight. If those are both clear, then you're allowed to leave. Um, if either of them tests positive, your your time starts over again from day one. So I've just done my day, day eight COVID test this morning and I'm really, really, really hoping that it stays negative because if the clock was to restart, it would be, um, it would be quite, um, quite a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And um, what was, what's your daily routine like in there? Have you got a set time you get up? Or do you just kind of wake up when you wake up? Is it like being a student again? <laughs> what's, yeah. what's life so like? I, I feel like I have been training for this moment for a while now. So when the UK had its initial lockdown in, in sort of March, April, um, I sort of didn't set foot outside the house. And I watched this really good YouTube video that spoke about how to allocate spaces for different activities in your house so that you don't, you know, read a book while lying on your bed or try to work from the bed or sort of exercise in the kitchen. So you associate spaces with different activities. Mm-hmm. And um, the YouTube video spoke about like, imagining if you're in a spaceship and you've got limited space and you just have to like really carefully plan how you set the, um, how you set your day out. And so I think that I've had sort of a little bit of training sort of like practice runs for this um but the space is really small so i've i've yeah i've been quite strict in like going to bed at the same time waking up at the same time i've expanded my wellness routine so usually i do like a you know 10 minute meditation in the mornings but i feel like i've been just saying oh no i think i need more than 10 minutes so i've been like lengthening that and where i usually do like half an hour of exercise i'm also like i'm still i have a pre-exercise stretching and then i've got the exercise and then i do some more stretching and then some yoga because i'm just like trying to pump in as many activities to fill the time um but also just make sure that i you know, i stay healthy and focused and then and then i i try to do some work during the day um Honestly, just because it helps to to make the day go by faster. Do you, do you think when you leave the hotel, you'll miss it? Will you get this feeling of big open space and you'll be like, I want to be back in my small room where everything is controlled. I've got my set times. Uh, you are, know what? Are you pretty I will much miss, looking forward to it? Yeah. I will miss the food. Um, the, the food has actually been incredible. It's been great. And um, I've developed this new association with someone knocking on the door just hearing sort of a rustle of papers and then you've got this amazing meal waiting for you just in the corridor that you can just quickly go and bring into the room so I think I might have to renegotiate my relationship with the postman when I'm back at home because I'm going to have a wrong association when I'm hearing him delivering something but salivating as soon as there's a knock at the door exactly. yeah <laughs> Exactly. So I, I think I'll, I'll, I'll miss food, but oh, I'm absolutely desperate to get outside and just do some proper exercise and go for a walk. And the weather has been beautiful, sunny. So I really hope some of it lasts until I, I manage to get outside. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Well, let's talk about what got you into that room in the first place, your, your yeah. TB research in South Africa. Uh, talk us through what you've been doing over there. 
So I, as a doctor in South Africa, I saw TB on a daily basis. Um, so many of my patients were had TB. Um, some of my colleagues fell ill with TB, so some of the other healthcare workers. And I think very few people know that it's actually been the leading cause of death in South Africa for the past couple of years running. And even in 2020, tuberculosis and COVID like, killed equal amounts of people in South Africa. Um, so we, we were really facing a huge respiratory pandemic without anybody really paying enough attention to it. So it was sort of like grumbling along in the background. TB has been with us for thousands of years. Like nobody was really paying much attention to preventing it from spreading, using masks, making sure ventilation is good in healthcare facilities. Um, and so that, that was sort of the spark for my research interest is just seeing on the one hand how much suffering TB is causing and, and, and that it was sort of just going by unmitigated and we weren't even using the basic infection control tools and the interesting reason behind that was that it it, it related more to social norms and sort of perceptions of infection control tools than data on efficacy and so we've known for for several years that the use of surgical masks for example by someone who has tb cuts down transmission by 50 percent um, and we tried to use masks in, in hospitals, but what my patients would tell me, they would just say, look, if I put on this mask in a hospital, um, it's like this public label telling everyone I've got TB and people look at you in a funny way. They try to avoid you, um, sort of like you you become this dirty person that is, is seen as almost less human. So it was a re it is a really, really stigmatized disease. And as a result of that, you know, we, we didn't use masks. Um, if, if one of my patients would wear a mask in the hospital, the moment they left it and got onto the public transport home, they, they would want to hide that mask so that other people didn't see that, you know, they were ill. And of course, that's completely counterproductive to how we want to use masks to prevent onward spread. And that's where my research um, sort of started. So it started with speaking to patients, speaking to health workers about masks, about the use of other tools like ventilation, like cue management, um, and finding out are there ways in which we can support the uptake and, and make it easier to use. And um, then, of course, the COVID pandemic came along, and I think uh, it has had so many devastating consequences. One small silver lining has been that it has completely destigmatized the use of masks in South Africa. And so before, if you saw someone wearing a mask, you thought oh, they might have infectious TB. Now you're just like, well, they're wearing a mask because of the COVID pandemic. And um, that was part of the data that I was collecting on my fieldwork now um, over, over the past December in South Africa before I returned to the UK. So yeah, that's, that's sort of the introduction to why I became interested in masks and infection control. Do they not have access to vaccines, like BCG vaccine? I guess it's kind of brought the number of cases of TB down. Yeah, so, such a good question, um, Jordan. And I think the, the sad reality is TB has not managed to garner a fraction of the attention and investment that COVID has. Mm. And so when we look at the BCG vaccine, it's 100 years old and it is 
not very effective in preventing disease. So it, it does help in children and it prevents them from getting severe TB of the brain. So TB meningitis, that can lead them to being deaf and blind and having severe neurological problems. So it does help children. But in terms of preventing TB disease in adults, it's really not a good vaccine. It's not effective at all. Um, and so I'm, I'm hoping that all of this investment that has been pouring into developing a COVID vaccine could also translate into better vaccines for TB. There's been some promising data from a new malaria vaccine coming out. So I'm, I'm really hoping that that can translate into better tools. But yeah, we, we've been we've been fighting a, a tuberculosis pandemic with outdated tools and sort of with, yeah, I, I almost had a feeling of we just didn't care enough to, to really invest and really make sure we, we improve the tools. And how, how do you think face masks have taken off over here you talked about how they used to be stigmatized in south africa and at first when 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 people first started wearing face masks over here there was kind of a bit of hesitancy i remember reading pieces in the newspaper saying actually they're more dangerous than not wearing them and there seems to be a fair bit of misinformation flying around why mm. do you think that was and how do you think the uk and i suppose the whole world has taken to wearing face masks, which is a you know a new thing for the majority of people. Mm. I think it was such a tricky space um, to be in as a scientist and as a policymaker because you're facing a new pandemic. Um, we've got ideas around how it spreads and what would be effective to mitigate it, but um, sort of in the very beginning, March, April, there just wasn't data. And so what we saw in, in some countries with regards to face masks is they went back to a pandemic playbook that they used before. And this was particularly prevalent in um, countries in Asia that had experience with the SARS pandemic and other countries with MERS pandemic. And so um, or MERS outbreaks, sorry, they, they fortunately didn't reach um, pandemic uh, proportions. Um, but it, it was it was sort of seen as the thing to do. So there's a, an outbreak of a respiratory disease. Let's reach for the face mask, let's avoid crowds. Uh, but it, it was interesting in other countries, all of that had to be negotiated. Um, and yes, there was a really big emphasis on the quality of evidence um, around that sort of initial decision-making. And I, I also was involved in some of the, the policy-making. We were looking at lessons from other diseases, looking at what did the laboratory data show? Uh, did we have randomized control trials for other illnesses? Or did we have randomized control trials for cough masks? So it was a really complex um, landscape to try to navigate. I think that some countries spent more time in that initial sort of period debating efficacy where other countries took the decision more rapidly, say, look, we're going to bet on face masks as a preventative tool and continue evaluating how that goes as more, more information becomes available. Um, but within sort of the space, I think by August, September of 2020, um, the vast majority of countries did sort of end up recommending face masks. I think there were just four um Sweden and I think um, Somalia and, and Sudan um, who, who weren't recommending um, the use of face masks. So it, it really was an impressive global shift towards using face masks. And um, I think countries with 
pre-existing social norms that viewed face masks as something that is a symbol of protecting others. Um, especially in Japan, there was some really interesting work on um, how, what people think about when they're wearing a face mask. So, of course, before the pandemic, it was quite um, common to be seen wearing a face mask there. Um, and there's some interesting work from anthropologists that said, well, people see face masks as a sign of politeness. And it's something, that, you know, it's a social norm for if you use public transport to, to put on your face mask. Um, and, and in other countries, we saw completely different social meanings attached to wearing a face mask. So in some countries, it was seen as sort of a sign of, of um, state control or um, some very vivid, vivid imagery, like a, a giant diaper over your face. So what we were seeing was, you know, while, while scientists were really debating around sort of what is the efficacy and whatnot, we, there was also another layer of what what symbolism people were attaching to to wearing a Facebook. And, and I found that really, really interesting. And we've seen such a variety of face masks um, crop up onto the market. You know, there are so many different types now available. What would you say is the best one to use? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question, Jordan. So I think... <laughs> There are so many options that it sort of the choice can feel paralyzing. What we need to add into our, in our add into our conversation over here is also to acknowledge that our understanding of how COVID spread has deepened and obtained more nuance. And so, while at the beginning of the pandemic we placed a lot of emphasis on um, hand hygiene, maintaining a safe distance. Um, and we were also concerned about fermite transmission. So there was a strong emphasis on making sure the um, surfaces were sort of cleaned regularly and some objects were placed in quarantine. I think our, our understanding has shifted and we've realized that there are other measures that are at times more important. So I, I would say sort of keeping a good distance and, and making sure you're um, you have frequent hand hygiene, those those are still really important measures. Um, but we know now that fomite transmission, so transmission through touching objects or touching a doorknob, is actually very unlikely. And we shouldn't be investing so much effort into sort of deep cleaning of um, businesses or something if, if there was someone who, who had COVID. Instead, we should really be pay, paying a lot more attention to ventilation. Um, and similarly, when we're looking at what kind of face mask to choose, well, initially we focused a lot on face masks as source control. So to say, I wear my face mask to protect you, you wear yours to protect me. As we have shifted and started to see, well, airborne transmission is an important additional consideration with COVID, we need to also ask the question, well, are our previous masks still good enough? You know, are there ways to also not just wear my mask to protect other people, but to make it a, a better quality mask that it also adds an extra level of protection to the wearer? Mm. Um, and there, there's been some really great work done by uh, Professor Lindsay Marr um, that test different kinds of combinations. And I'm sure you probably heard um, Dr. Anthony Fauci speaking about double masking. Yeah. And so a quick um two-minute summary of what kind of mask to choose um, based on, on, on um, Professor Ma's data would be if you choose a cloth mask, make sure you choose one that has three layers. Um, if you wear a combination of a surgical mask and a cloth mask, and then so, so that sort of looks at the, the ability of the mask to, to be a good um, filter. 
The second component you think about is fit. And so does the mask really have a nice tight seal around your face? And that's actually the reason behind the recommendation for doubling up a surgical mask and a, a cloth mask, because often the surgical mask has really big um, gaps around your cheeks. And so um, by adding the, the cloth mask on top, you actually improve the fit. So the Center for Disease Control, they've got really nice guidelines um, on how to choose a good cloth mask. They've also got really nice tips and tricks so you can make a knot in a mask that fits too loosely and that, that can help you um, so you knot the ear loop and then that helps you tuck some of the excess material in. Um, they also mention you can hold up your surgical mask against the light and if it actually blocks out most of the light, you know, that's a rough indicator that you've got a, um, a good number of layers. So I really encourage listeners to have a look at those guidelines. They're, they're really good. Are you safer? Are you safer as the wearer or the non-wearer of the mask? So, if someone is wearing a mask and you're not, are you more at risk? Are or they? Yeah. So the the optimal scenario is for if you are in an indoor setting, especially when there are lots of people around, is for for both people to wear a mask. Mm. Um. Uh, Safer would be to try to move the, the conversation or the meeting outdoors. Um, and with with your knowledge about these things, when say pubs, cinemas, all these things open up, are you going to be going in on the first week, or are you going to be thinking, ah, oh, I know too much about this for this to be enjoyable? I can imagine how the transmission works in my head. All these things. How will you feel going indoors with other people for the first time, where there's no requirement for you to wear a mask sure without a requirement to wear a mask then i would be very hesitant to to go into an indoor space um i think we've we've had so many reports of outbreaks linked to indoor dining especially where people take off their masks to eat um so for me to feel safe in an indoors restaurant they would really need to convince me that they have paid attention to their ventilation and um that would involve making sure the sort of the windows are open and they can use ceiling fans for air mixing. There are lots of other tools as well if, if your um, facility isn't able to, to have those. So looking at HEPA filtration. Um, I've been quite encouraged. There's a group of people on Twitter calling themselves the CO2 gorillas. And so they <laughs> use a, a mobile CO2 um, measuring device when visiting an indoor space um, to see uh, and they use carbon dioxide as a proxy for ventilation. And so when they, for example, go to the pharmacy to pick up medication, they take their device along and then um, they're able to give real-time feedback to the people working in the pharmacy to say, look, you know, the, the current levels are at a risky zone. Is it possible to make a change, either keep a window open or keep the door open on side? And there's some really encouraging stories. So I I would personally feel really hesitant to go um, to an indoor space. Um, yeah, it's, I, I would, it could be possible to, to start thinking about whether sort of the person is vaccinated or not. Um, would play a role, whether you live with someone in your household um, that is at risk of de developing severe disease. Um, but from an infection control standpoint, uh, I would absolutely just say we need to look at ventilation and when indoors, masks offer a really valuable extra preventative layer and both sort of the wearer and as many people in the space as possible should be using their masks. 
And do do you think previously we talked about how masks could be stigmatized? Do you think it might be the case that people not wearing masks that could be something that's stigmatized over the coming months? Because when I'm if I'm in the supermarket and someone walks through without a mask on, you almost see everyone kind of follow them and this kind of group think of everyone being like, "What are you doing, not wearing a mask?" Yeah. Do you, do you yeah. Think, think it's going to be the norm for for quite a long time? Group norms are a really interesting, um, really interesting phenomenon. So I, yeah, there have been examples of people um, who are unable to wear a mask um, being stigmatized for it. I think we should keep in mind we 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 the pandemic is not over yet and we've still there are still so many uncertainties that we need to consider before making final decisions around sort of the use of masks in public spaces um areas where i've seen the guidelines change um, and this is also from the center for disease control as they said if you are vaccinated and you're meeting someone else um in a private space who is also vaccinated then it's not necessary to wear a mask um but if you are vaccinated and you're using a public space, please continue to use masks. And I think this complexity of finding out sort of what epidemic threshold should we use to say, look, we don't need masks anymore, is still unclear. And I would, I would really rather err on the side of caution. Um, mm. And so while we are not sure of what kind of vaccination rates we need, um, we are not sure that our indoor spaces are, have got adequate ventilation yet um i would say for, for the next couple of months i would predict that we'll continue to use masks in public spaces and um even if you are already vaccinated um because one of the the positive things about masks is they work irrespective of variant and they're also not specific to certain diseases so in sort of once the, the global COVID pandemic has started to to die down, if we're looking at sort of what will happen then, I think we will see masks still being used. Um I, I don't I think once the mask mandates are lifted, there will definitely be a group of people who, who stop wearing them and um who've been really vocal in their dissent for the use of masks. But I think masks have become much more socially acceptable in several countries that have had no history of using them um, before. And to me, it would make sense to wear a mask if I am getting onto a crowded tube in winter to make sure that, you know, I'm not exposed to flu. Or I also get really bad hay fever. So if it's pollen season, you know, popping on the mask when I'm walking outside, um, it will become an individual decision, but I think we will see more people feeling comfortable enough to to still continue the use. One really interesting fact that I wasn't aware of before was in Japan, the use of masks was really widespread in between 1914 and 1918, so with during the, the great flu pandemic. Mm. Before that, mask use was uncommon. It wasn't it wasn't frequently done in Japan at all. So after that pandemic the social norms around mask wearing shifted and so when the pandemic ended and the, they had a mask mandate and that mask mandate was lifted people continued to wear masks so i found that really interesting i'm not sure what we will see i think countries are so different um but it will be interesting what what will what will be left behind yeah just yeah. one final question from me before i move you on to jordan and the quickfire 
Um, have you got a range of different masks for different occasions? Have, have you got a humorous mask? You know, you can get ones with like a little cat's nose and whiskers and stuff on. Any of that? Or, or are you just straight up, you've got one mask, this is my mask, I know it's the best one. Or is there a kind of any fashion edge there? Oh, no, absolutely. I've got different masks to match outfits. I've got um, one mask. So I've tried to follow my own advice to make sure like I wear a mask that has three layers. The middle layer is a polypropylene filter layer which is what the Center for Disease Control and the WHO recommend. Um, so I wear that mask when I'm, for example, um, going shopping or having to use public transport because I know like, yeah, that adds an extra sort of layer of protection. But when I'm just walking outdoors, I use a, a simpler mask. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I've definitely got various masks and I, I play around with, with, with them. Yeah. Brilliant. All right, so now we just have a short, quick fire round of questions. So how it's going to work, Ellen, is I'll read the first half of a sentence and then you just have to complete the sentence how you see fit. So if I was to say, my favourite food is, you'd say whatever your favourite food is. (laughs) Um, A burrito. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) The first question I've got, the first sentence the single most important measure you can take right now to prevent COVID would be? Make sure you're in a space with good ventilation. Be outdoors. Yeah. Single most important is move your meetings, your meetups, your drinks. Move, have that all outdoors. Excellent. Uh, and the largest threat to global public health, aside from COVID, right now is? Forgetting to look at the global picture and only focusing on your own country. Why is it so important that we take a global perspective on on health, on public health, on COVID? Yeah, I, I think that we've just realised during this pandemic that our health is interconnected. Um, so just because one country has access to vaccine um, where other countries don't, I think that we'll see the pandemic lagging on. Um, so you can justify sharing preventative tools and sort of intellectual property related to vaccines sort of based on reducing suffering. But if you wanted to go for a less altruistic reason and purely focus on sort of what it means for a country, um, I think there's a strong argument to make that our health is interlinked. And so only focusing your pandemic response and sort of making sure your own population is vaccinated is, is very short-sighted. And um, we've seen how um, sort of uncontrolled spread of COVID leads to emergence of new variants um, that then, again, threaten the health of everybody around us. So it's really important. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And the final sentence is, the first thing I'm going to do when I leave quarantine hotel is... Go for a very, 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 very long walk outside. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So we were saying, weren't we, before we started, you've been confined to walking in a car park only. So I'm I'm looking forward to to walking in a sort of a beautiful park and not having to check my watch to make sure what time did my walk start? Should I I head back? So no, I'm really excited for that. Well, thank you so much for joining us and taking some time, especially um, from Quarantine Hotel, to talk to us today. Yeah, yeah thank pleasure. you so thank much, Shelley Marie. 
Welcome to Lab Life. Now, Guernsey in the Channel Islands removed all its coronavirus restrictions on the 24th of March. However, arrivals from mainland UK are still required to isolate for two weeks. I'm joined now by Zoe Andrews, healthcare scientist assistant and trainee biomedical scientist in microbiology at Guernsey's only hospital, the Princess Elizabeth. Zoe's COVID lab has tested the entire population of the island. Zoe has also introduced Harvey's gang laboratory tours for children on the island. So hi Zoe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on today. Hi, thanks for asking. So what's it been like? Because you've been responsible for for setting up an entire COVID laboratory. And I understand at the beginning, you were sending samples back to England and you had to build a larger room to deal with the workload, called in locums. What was it like? Uh, It's like a blur. But the first lockdown, we we were posting tests away um, and it wasn't sustainable because of the amount of tests that we were doing. So... We had a separate machine that would only do like a small amount of tests at once. And then they they knew pretty much straight away that this wasn't going to work. So they converted two rooms down from our lab into like a category two room and didn't do PCR testing at all. In fact, I think they managed to get the PCR testing up and running in under three weeks from my recollection, which is crazy. That's with all the quality controls as well. Quite an amazing effort. It wasn't like, that wasn't my hard work at all because, you know, that that was the scientist and that was my line manager and that was his line manager and and that was also public health, you know, that, there's some really, really clever people in public health. And, you know, it, it was a team effort. I mean, on Guernsey, there's been a very specific community spirit. You've had the hashtag, haven't you, Guernsey together. Because Guernsey has quite a large ageing population as well. And they're not all on social media. And in the first wave, there was a really big drive for disability charities and, and other charities to get um, old people like some form of like device. So there was a charity that was set up to um, get tablets to people that, that could, so they could FaceTime, so they could still have human interactions. Mm. And then there was a lot of people that obviously couldn't work that would go and do voluntary like prescription runs and food shopping. Like everyone really stepped up to the mark. Okay then. So moving on to the, the second lockdown that started mm-hmm. in January, You've tested 58,000 in those three months from January to March. Yeah, so this this wasn't like a slow build-up. This was a, oh my God, it's happened again, and straight to it. And like within, I think, four days, we were doing a 1,000 tests a day, and we were screening as much as we could. And it was, I mean, it was crazy. Like, I was off for a couple of days, and didn't realise what had happened and then the lockdown was announced and it was my daughter's birthday party the next day so obviously that was all cancelled and then straight back in I went into work Mm. on on the day it was announced and I was just like look at all the testing that we're gonna have to do and and by that point the locum Shirley that we had before she wasn't there so it was right start again and everyone just had to do crazy hours. And, and you, that's what 
if that's what you do, you sort of go into survival mode, don't you? Yeah. Well, it sounds like you did a really excellent job because you came out of lockdown in March. Yeah. How has people's behaviour changed and what aspects have remained important? Are people still social distancing, wearing face masks, avoiding kind of indoor spaces? Or people have people kind of moved on from it now and are more confident and really returned to a normal mindset? It's it's definitely sort of been a gradual, so lockdown's lifted, but when I've been into town, like the the um, the day, second, second day lockdown's lifted, you still saw people with masks. Mm. Not everybody, but you still saw people with masks. And people were still like, on the main street, they were still like interacting with a gap. Whereas in Guernsey, it's very normal. Like every a lot of people know each other, and in town, people will go and give someone a hug, or you know, that wasn't happening. But like say last weekend, where we were in town, everybody's out. It's like nothing has ever happened, and literally the only thing that makes you think it did happen was like you'll go into Boots and there's the hand sanitizer. And you'll go to the queue and there's the white, there's like the yellow tape on the floor. And people do still queue. They, they do still do that. But it is like it's never happened. So the only measure that is still in place is the 14-day quarantine period for travellers to the island. It has changed today. So it's down to the categorisation of regional regions in the UK. So where you are would decide whether you would do 14 days or seven days. Mm. So each region's got a number and it's to do with how many cases per 100,000. Right. So it is it is still relatively strict, but that is why island life is thriving. And a lot of people don't like that. And, and to be honest, I do, I really miss my family. You know, they, they would come over and stay and, and they can't do that unless they isolate. I would like to go back, but I can't afford the annual leave. And and it's difficult. It is difficult. Yeah. Well, also, Zoe, you actually introduced the tours for Harvey's Gang to Guernsey. I mean, what inspired you to start Harvey's Gang originally in Guernsey? Um, probably my own children. Right. Um, my son has had a lot of health problems and he's not good with blood tests at all. In fact, bless him, he passed out last year outside the lab after having one done and he's still having blood tests now. And I think after seeing Malcolm present at the last Congress, I was just like, why can't we do it here? You know, we're not a massive lab. And there are children that are having to go to Southampton for treatments, for like cancer treatments, you know. Maybe it is doable. And then I thought, I'll apply for this bursary. Because yeah. I know it's a charitable thing, but if I, you know, having that extra funding there, but also it wasn't for me in my mind getting extra money to, to get it running. It was, if I do this, this is going to get some attention and then more people are going to know what it's about. And then more people are going to know that it's there and it's available on Guernsey and if their children need help they can ask for it and and I've got the runner-up prize and I've still not used that funding yet because people have been brilliant but it's more to let the island know that this facility is there and we can help your kids find out where your local Harvey's gang is 
let your child see what the labs are like. So you managed to do some tours straight after the first lockdown. Yeah. What were they like and what do you actually show the kids in the laboratory? Well, they're ever changing because I'm new to it. Mm. Um, and the first tour was a, was a three-year-old, so that is quite young. She had bloods done every week. She's called Locker, really cute. I wanted to just take her home, to be honest. Yeah. She's actually just had the all, all clear. Aww. She's just had the all clear. She got to ring the bell for the first time this week at the hospital. Right. So we did do another tour for a young boy. Um, and he thoroughly enjoyed it, like really enjoyed it. And he couldn't believe that he got to take the lab coat home. And then my third tour was uh, two absolute whirlwind brothers. They've got a genetic, like, um, rickets condition. So they have to have bloods done frequently. And they were like pocket rockets. (laughs) Yeah. So, but they sort of just arrived and they wanted to touch everything. But it was really funny. Like, it really makes everyone's day. So what do the children take away from getting this behind-the-scenes experience of where all their tests are taking place? At the end of that tour um, with Ash and Zach, they actually had their own blood samples and they put them on the analyzer in chemistry. Children and adults in general do not realize that we're there. We're like magic. Like they have their bloods done and that's it. So the fact that they got to come down, have the lab coats on and see, they, they, they were just a little bit like, it's a Harry Potter moment, isn't it? <laughs> It's, it's crazy. Yeah. But I, we also have like some um, like parasites in jars and stuff, and I always show the kids that. Impresses them, does it? Yeah. <laughs> it's also changing, it's changing your language as well. That makes it interesting to them. So when they ask what I do, like mm. part of my job is doing the um, fit testing for bowel cancer. So it's just, I know it sounds terrible, but I just tell them I actually play with poo. <laughs> <laughs> Which they think, they're like, oh, wow, really? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming onto the podcast, Zoe, and chatting to us. Thank you. If you'd like to read more about either of our guests, then follow the links in our show notes. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. These podcasts are released monthly at the same time the magazine comes out. So whenever a new issue lands on your doormat, head back online to listen to a new episode. And don't forget that these podcasts can be used for your CPD. Take care and bye.